0: This episode is brought to you by The Twelfth Man, more than standing at football games. The Twelfth Man is the spirit of Aggieland, that rich thread of positivity, the energy that defines Texas A&M like nothing else does. The original Twelfth Man, E. King Gill, came down out of the stands and suited up, ready to play in his team's time of need. Today's Twelfth Man honors his memory by standing ready to serve at all times. That constant vigilance, the state of readiness to help our fellow person, that's what makes us Aggies. The Mays MasterCast is proud to represent Texas A&M University and Mays Business School. Mays Business School's vision is to advance the world's prosperity. This sounds like a lofty goal, and it is, but we know it is also realistic because our former students are doing exactly that, advancing the world's prosperity. Our former students are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, VPs of strategy for Fortune 100 companies, and leaders in their various communities, nonprofits, and families.
1: Welcome to Maze Mastercast. I'm Shannon Deere, the assistant dean for graduate programs here with your amazing host, Ben Wiggins, and our fabulous producer, Kyle Ackerman. Hey, guys. What's going on? on? You know, just hanging out. It actually is a beautiful day in Aggieland. It really is. It It is. is. It's kind of magical. It's a very nice day. All right. Well, today on the show, we have Travis Kling, who is probably the coolest nerd I've ever met. He's I, cool. Totally you, agree. If you get to see the video, he's wearing high top Nikes and a really cool hoodie, and his hat backwards, and then he just geeks out the whole episode. Yes. So it's yes. pretty, it's pretty awesome.
0: I'm partial to cling nerds to begin with because Justin, Travis's older brother, and I have been best friends for thirty years.
1: But, <laughs> That's uh, awesome. Yeah, I That's love awesome.
0: that. Love that family.
1: So. One thing that I'll say before you listen to the episode, I would not listen to this episode while you're driving because I would just have Google accessible for you to Google all of the things that he says and all the acronyms that he uses. Usually we try to bridge the curse of knowledge gap in the intro a little bit by explaining some of the things that the guests say And I don't think that we could do that. I started writing down, he said AUM, which is assets under management. And I I was going to say, oh, can we explain that? And then there were about 50 other things. And so I don't think we could even begin to start explaining some of the things that he says. And I don't want to try. And I didn't want to interrupt the episode at any point slowing him down in that process. So I would just say don't listen to this one while you're driving. Listen to this one while you can Google and just Google some of the acronyms and some of the words that he says because if you're not familiar with traditional investing, some of the gap bridging that you have to do to get to what he talks about with crypto investing is a little bit tough to do. So that's kind of the the tone of the episode. We talk a little bit at the beginning about his background And then really just go, as he says, pretty deep down the rabbit hole of crypto asset investing.
2: Just hearing him talk about the rabbit hole was very much my experience last year. You know, I heard about Bitcoin. I heard about all of these different coins that are within the the ecosystem is how he put it, which I really liked a lot. Having to hear his take on it and how he's built an entire you know, company out of this is so cool. When I heard about it when it was like 2012, which would have been great to get in, but I was still like freshman, sophomore in high school. But uh, I got really lucky in my experience and to hear him just before he left, not necessarily give me a tip, but let me know what the the ecosystem is doing within what I am in invested in is making me uh, think really hard. So that's awesome. But, uh, you know, having to hear what, how passionate he was, and how in it he is, how involved he is in this community that a lot of people claim in the tr- the traditional realm is crazy to invest in any of this. And as a young kid that got lucky last year, I'm starting to get the consequence of <laughs> of the of this year. But you know that's part of the game.
1: Absolutely, in traditional investing and in crypto asset management too. So we're going to. Ben, anything else you want to tease on the episode?
0: So we'll talk a little bit about energy investing first and its connections to A&M. We always like to talk about the person's ties to the Texas A&M culture, the Mays culture, the College Station culture. So Travis and I will touch briefly on that. We talk about how he's not a tech guy and he's not, you know, he's not an early adopter. He's more cautious among his group of you know hedge fund investors, his friends from the iBanking world and the hedge fund world, we talk a little bit about the technicalities of how crypto assets work. He calls them crypto assets instead of cryptocurrencies. And we talk about how the currencies are just one direction that distributed ledger technology, of which blockchain is a kind of distributed ledger technology, and all of the possibilities for what this will be able to do and how it may be able to change our lives. And then we talk about kind of the open sourceness of the whole thing and how the the democratization of information in this space. We spend a lot of time talking about that as well. So we've got a really good episode for you guys. I, I hope, that you, hope that you enjoy it.
1: Yeah, get your uh, fingers ready for the pause button and typing for Google and enjoy the episode.
0: Our guest today is a good friend of mine. We've known each other since elementary school. You've done a lot of really interesting stuff. I've been best friends with your brother since we were knee-high to a grasshopper, (laughs) and I'm really interested to hear some more of your story and a lot more about where you are now and what you're doing now. Travis Kling, how are you doing today? Doing well, Ben. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for being on the show. So... You are, let's start at the very beginning. You are a Texas guy and a College Station guy. College Hills all the way through your MS in Finance at Mays Business School. Tell us briefly about your history with this community.
3: Yep, sure. So born and raised in College Station, third generation A&M. Grandfather grew up in Cossie, Texas. So came back from World War II and enrolled at Texas A&M. Family's been here ever since. Both my parents attended Texas A and M. Older brother didn't didn't really have much of a choice, but uh, didn't really want one anyways. So,
0: so your background is very Texas, very A and M. Are are there any ways that you feel like that was a particular advantage in doing the kinds of things that you are doing now? And is are there any ways that that may have been not as much of an advantage? Are there things that you had to learn? So. To, to illustrate a little bit more for you what I'm talking about, when I went down to Rice, I thought Houston is weird, like this place is weird, and I, I have a lot of love for Rice, but the reason that I felt that way was because I thought College Station was just how communities are, and I've seen over and over again in, you know, adult life that that's not really the case. College Station is its own unique place, and I think in many cases that's a good thing, but what we're What were the things that came out of that that you learned from being a college stationite that might have equipped you better for what you started doing in business? Or in some cases, were were there any habits that you formed that you had to unlearn? Prior to jumping into
3: crypto asset investing, I had a career in energy investing. Mm -hmm. Um, And the oil and gas industry is, you know, Attached at the hip with Texas A&M University, and 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 that's been great. I lived in Texas all my life, and and up until two and a half years out of college, and then and then moved to Chicago, and then and then New York, mm-hmm. and now Los Angeles. So have have kind of lived. At this point in you know, major metropolitan areas all over the United States, and you know, I can tell you unequivocally, there's there's no place like Texas. Living outside of Texas makes you appreciate the people here even more and their disposition in general and the friendliness. I think as I have you know moved outside of Texas and moved into a career where, you know, to be frank, I think I, I, I would run into less and less Aggies. It made me ab- appreciate being from here even more. And I think that there is, um, you know, A&M has a reputation for building leaders. I'd, I'd like to think that I've I've been a leader in my career. And as you step outside of the A&M ecosystem and go into the rest of the world, I think those, those leadership qualities and characteristics that are so you know, essential and foundational to getting an education at this place. I think those really have an opportunity to
0: shine. Let's talk a little bit about leadership. So a lot of people say that playing sports builds character. It builds, you know, the ability to work in a team. You played football into college. What do you feel like Sports gave you, maybe what were some of the unexpected gifts that sports gave you? Something Mm -hmm. counterintuitive, perhaps.
3: Yeah, so football was my life until I was 19 years old. So I played my freshman and sophomore year at Blinn down in Brenham, was actually going to play, going to walk on to a herniated a disc in my lower my back my sophomore year in college, couldn't play football anymore. Mm. I was a defensive end all growing up. That was uh, a 265-pound Travis as opposed to a 200-pound Travis. Ben remembers 265-pound Travis. I, I do. I do remember. <laughs> but I, I, I got an extraordinary amount out of athletics that I found applicable to academics and then to my career and the number one thing and i've i've told this story i don't even know how many times because it's so such a big part of who i am what football taught me was more often than not the only thing in between point a and point b is just a bunch of hard work and you have to decide for yourself whether or not you're willing to put the work in to get from point a to point b but most things in life are not rocket science. And um, unless you're actually trying to cure cancer, you're not trying to find a cure for cancer. And so a lot of times it's, it's just a function of, like, are you willing to push the ball up the hill or is the ball a little too heavy for you or you're going to get a little too tired or you're, you're not quite as dedicated to get from point A to point B? And, you know, I, I think... When I was playing football at Blinn, I got there and I was used to being the star of the football team. And then I got there and I was playing football with a bunch of guys that were better at football than I was. And I, that, know, that, I know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was a feeling that I was not used to. And I was second string my my freshman year, and I had never been second string in anything in my entire life. And I think that got to me and challenged me and I got bigger and faster and stronger over the course of that off season and showed up and was one of the, you know, team captains my sophomore year, uh, had a really good sophomore year that put me in a position that, you know, if I hadn't had an injury, you know, could have gone to continue playing. And I think as I moved into, you know, academics and, you know, it was important, important to me to, you know, have, have a high GPA so I could get the job that I wanted to get when I got out of college. It was just like, you know, do you want to study, you know, five hours and get a B or do you want to study 15 hours and get an A and you can just boil more or less all of college down to that. And it's not, it's not so dissimilar, you know, moving into career path as well.
0: So you you majored in you majored in finance uh, undergrad accounting masters in finance
3: the PPA account. program shout out to PPA program
0: <laughs> so David Wiggins my brother yep. came on the show a couple of days ago and I asked him a question that I'd never asked him before which was when did you when did you become interested in money when mm-hmm. did you become interested in finance why that and he said well money as it turns out buys you things. (laughs) And if you have money, you can get a lot of stuff. And I like stuff. So I was interested in money from a very early age. So that was his rationale was very honest of him. I appreciated that. So when did you become interested in money in finance? And what made you want to work in that field?
3: It's a a great question. It's an it's a very A&M Citric answer, actually. Um, So I had a bunch of lawyers in my family. Hmm. Dad's lawyer, uncles, cousins, Grew up around a lot of a lot of uh, lawyers. I actually started working full time. My 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 dad had a small legal practice in in Bryan when I was growing up, and I started working full time at my dad's law firm the summer after sixth grade. I was uh, twelve, and I would go in with him and leave with him. I, I was working fifty hours a week the summer after sixth grade, which uh, sort of carried that with me the rest of my life, actually, <laughs> and. From a really early age, I my dad had a, a lawyer that he was in contact with that was an M&A attorney, and this guy, his name was Bill Fleming, he's passed away, great guy, he started the m practice at Vincent and Elkins, so this guy's a big deal, mm-hmm. uh, and had done decades of legendary m and legal work. And I met him at a really early age through my dad, and in his office he had cabinets full of tombstones. For M&A deals, you know, little, you know, the little glass trophies that commemorate M&A transactions. And I was 13 years old and I asked my dad, you know, dad, what are all those tombstones and what are all those, those glass trophy things in in Mr. Fleming's office? My dad said, those are tombstones. I said, what's that? And he said, it's for an M&A transaction. I said, what's M&A? And he said, mergers and acquisitions. I said, what's that? And he said, it's where one company buys another company. And I was like, one company buys another company. And I, I remember clearly I was 13 years old. And, uh, and the only frame of reference for buying things that I had was like, I go to the mall and I buy a CD or I go and buy a pack of baseball cards. And then it was like one company buys another company. And I didn't really understand exactly what that meant, but that sounded like the coolest thing I'd ever heard of. And I so that's what I wanted to do. So if you'd asked 14 year old Travis. Travis, what are you going to do for a living? I'd say MA attorney. I was 14 years old, which is a really funny thing. Was from the time I was 14 until the time I was 20, that's what I wanted to do. And I was in the pre law society here, and I was like, gonna go crush my LSAT and go get an Ivy League JD. And I was going to do the PPA program here. So I'd get my CPA and then I'd go get my JD and then I'd be super set up to do m law. And that was the plan. Mm-hmm. And it tied into, as I got, you know, into high school and into college, it tied into how I felt my strengths were, which was I always considered myself verbally much, much more sort of that type of brain than quantitatively and really this, the sense of that was like in, in high school, it was really easy to make an A in AP English. And I had to study hard to make an AP in an, an A in AP calculus. And that was just sort of the way it was for me and always great at giving speeches, all that kind of stuff. Sure. So I got all the way to Sally Guyton's finance three forty one, which was like the, the class to kind of make like not really the weed out class, but sort of the weed out class for the PPA program and people that thought maybe they wanted to do the PPA program would get into that class and they'd have a hard time with that class and they decided they needed to do something else. Okay. And I took that class and people were having a really hard time with it. And one, it was super interesting to me, mm-hmm. like really found the content just deeply fascinating and it was a duck to water. And I, I, I can't remember. I think I made like a 95 in the class, crushed it. And it was super easy to me. And I was like, Travis, you should probably pay attention to that because you kind of thought you weren't a big numbers guy. And now all of a sudden you are. And then about that time, I got a good understanding of what investment banking was. And investment banking is sort of the numbers side of an M&A deal where M&A attorneys are handling the legal side. Mm -hmm. And so that was at that point, I kind of turned my direction from a career path towards uh, investment banking.
0: Okay. And so then piggybacking off of that, you started out in energy, as you said earlier, Simmons, then Magnetar. So tell us a little bit about that process. Like what and, and what we always go for is what subverted your expectations? What was, you know, like people can ask, you know, what did you learn from that? And you can just get, you can, you can offer conventional wisdom, you know, stuff that sort of makes sense to everybody. But what were the things you learned that surprised you during your time at Simmons and Magnetar?
3: At Simmons and company, I learned financial mm-hmm. analysis. I worked with a great group of guys there, deeply appreciative of the my bosses that I had there, and the mentors that I had there. I got out of school in May of 08, went to work at Simmons and Company first week of July of 08, which was the all-time high in WTI prices. WTI was like $142 a barrel. Yeah. And then I took the financial crisis in the face, you know, the first six months Yeah. That I was out of school. And that, that was crazy. I'll never forget, you know, everybody has their kind of where were you moment when Lehman collapsed. And I'll never forget that when I was in Edmonton, Canada, inside of a oil and gas valve manufacturer, and we were trying to close wrap up confirmatory due diligence on a $300 million sell side transaction. And I was sitting there, you know, on Google finance, watching the world fall apart. It's pretty crazy. But I, you know, I just, I think I learned, I learned a lot there from the guys that I worked for about how to run a good team, mm-hmm. how to, you know, you work a lot of hours in investment banking but i think almost all my friends that worked at other investment banks especially in new york had more painful investment banking experiences than i did and which is to say they worked for a lot of guys that, that weren't like such good guys or worked in environments that were you know not the best environments to help you know get a knowledge base to go build your career on top of. And that was really what I think my time at, at Simmons was about was a, you, you're out of college, you don't know much of anything, you know, hate to, hate to break it to, to the college students that are listening to this right now, but as much as you think, you know, you, you don't know anything. And so what my time at Simmons allowed me to do was just be on a really steep learning curve and the learning curve steep and your opportunity to move up it is, it's unencumbered because you can work twice as much as you would in a normal job. So not only is it steep, but you can move up it fast. And so I was there for two and a half years and it's probably like five, five years worth of experience in a lot of other jobs. So then I went to magnetar and I was there, I was at magnetar capital in Chicago from 2011 through the middle of 15. So that was the go, go years in oil and gas. And when I joined the energy business there, which operated like its own, autonomous hedge fund within the broader magnetar magnetar was 11 billion AUM when I joined the energy business was managing 250 million when I joined I was there for four and a half years when I left we were managing 4.6 billion so I had had massive AUM growth over that period of time we we're doing long short energy equities and non-control private equity and debt in the energy space so up and down the capital structure broad investment mandate long investment horizon in the liquid book we'd invest in stocks that traded a billion dollars a day and in the structured business we would write a 75 million dollar check into a financial instrument that you couldn't get out of for three years so it had this cross capital structure investing experience and had an, an experience investing in extremely liquid instruments and extremely illiquid instruments which didn't know it at the time served me extremely well moving into crypto. Uh, cause I think I've got a pretty g- I've got a pretty good amount of experience thinking through how much is it worth if I can change my mind tomorrow. And so we had a lot of success when I w- uh, when I was at Magnetar, worked on a great team there. Seven investment professionals when I started nine when I left. You know we won 2012 Specialist Hedge Fund of the Year from Hedge Fund Research Magazine and. Raised hundreds of millions of dollars from the most institutional investors on the planet, big state plans, pension funds, endowments, the black rocks of the world. And uh, investment banking teaches you a lot about financial analysis, doesn't teach you a lot about investing. Learned kind of everything that I think I, all I learned my entire foundation of investing more or less when I was at Magnetar. And again, worked for a great group of guys, really smart group of guys. And, you know, specifically because we were doing this cross capital structure investing, we had the opportunities. So we played a lot in the middle part of the capital structure. So we did a lot of, you know, not to go too far down the rabbit hole here, but we did a lot of private convertible preferred equity. So we would write a $150 million check in, into preferred equity that would then convert into the common, common publicly yeah. publicly traded equity of an energy infrastructure company. We did a lot in midstream energy companies. Mm-hmm. And so we would write these instruments. We would put together a base case that looked like it was kind of low to mid-teens returns. Mm-hmm. And if something really bad happened, it was probably high single-digit returns. And if, um, you know, if you hit your upside case, then, you know, maybe you were high teens or up to uh, maybe maybe up to low 20s. And you would look at the risk profile of an investment like that relative to and, and it'd be like a three year. You'd be locked in for three years, maybe as long as, as four or five. OK. And you go look at that risk profile relative to trying to go do that in the public market space mm-hmm. and go and try and hit. 14% returns three years in a row in the public markets. And the amount of risk that you'd have to go take to try and go do that in the public markets relative to what you were getting in this. would be crazy. It was, it was, it was extremely attractive, right? And so it gave me this, like this really good knowledge base of risk adjusted returns in the context of cross capital structure investing and in highly liquid versus illiquid instruments. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, a couple of things we'll come back. You mentioned institutional investors, which we will definitely come back to later in the context of our crypto conversation. You also were talking a little bit about just the grind at an iBank or a hedge fund, and so it's sometimes it can be tough to contextualize the grind. Like I've done, I worked in football with uh, Coach Fran uh, a dozen years ago, and worked in the entertainment business, and the the grinds in those industries are different. I wouldn't say one is necessarily easier than the other but they're very very different. So and I heard one of uh, one of Kevin Sumlin's GAs last year complaining about their 60-hour work weeks and I wanted to pat him on the head bro mm-hmm. oh, 60 hours that sounds like a sweet dream in the college football world but putting numbers on it what is banking like? What is, what is a hedge fund like your first several years out of school? Like for, for people who might be interested in going into an industry like that, you know, what's your high end? What's your low end? How often do you hit each one in terms of just the raw work hours? And obviously some of that is choice. So,
3: so I tell people 15 times 7 is 105. Mm-hmm. So if you work 15 hours a day, it's 7 days a week, that's 105-hour work week. Mm-hmm. Definitely had 105-hour work weeks before. You know, it's is it a little. It was a little less in hedge fund investing when I was at Magnetar. When I was a portfolio manager at point seventy two, it was uh, a little more just because it was my baby, mm-hmm. and I was I was uh, had complete discretion over my portfolio. You know, but fifty hours on the low end, and you know, I think I have found a pace throughout my career you know, 65s, I think, feel pretty sustainable for mm-hmm. me. I wish I was smart enough to, to get the work done with a bunch less hours, but I hadn't figured out how to do that yet at any point in my career. And, you know, I think there is, you know, people talk about work smart versus work hard. I think I've always tried to take the approach of doing both. And if you want to get far, or you want to achieve something that is fundamentally difficult to achieve in this life. I, I don't know what world you live in where you think that that's going to come easy, mm-hmm. but that's just not the way the world works. And so the 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 quicker that you come to that realization in life, the the, the better off you're going
0: to be. So you mentioned point seventy two. I, I always wondered where that name came from. Is it the rule of seventy two? People talk about that. The
3: address of the headquarters in Stanford, Connecticut is 72 Cummings Point Road. Oh, so there you but go. It, but it's probably a nod to the rule of 72 a little bit as well, too.
0: Sure. It's sure. probably both. You mentioned you were on Pomp's show, Anthony Pompliano, yep. I believe. Um, you were on his show and he was under the impression or sort of made the assumption that at a place like that, the guy next to you, the guy down the hall is coming for your spot. And you said at point seven two that was not necessarily the case. Like there was obviously everybody's good at what they do, but there was a sense, I don't remember exactly how you put it, but there was a sense of, of team in the sense that it's not a zero sum game. My success is not your failure. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Great place to work.
3: I think it just felt like pro ball. That's yeah. just what I, and I, and not that Magnetar didn't feel like pro ball, but um I don't know. Maybe, maybe if Magnetar was pro ball, point seventy two felt like the pro bowl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was undoubtedly a meritocracy. So maybe sometimes people confuse a meritocracy with a cutthroat or uh, you know, I'm trying to make this guy do worse. Um, or I'm, I'm trying to you know, do whatever I can to beat the guy next to me. But it's, it's two different things. And the meritocracy in the context of, you know, a place like Point72 is if your ideas make money, they're going to give you more money. If your ideas lose money, if they lose money long enough, they're going to ask you to leave. And that's a pretty straightforward situation. As a guy that came from athletics, one of my most favorite things about hedge fund investing as an industry is how black and white it is. And you got a scoreboard and it doesn't matter if, you know, you can be fat or skinny or brown or purple, or, um, you know, people can like you or hate you and you can be Christian or a Muslim or it, it doesn't matter. Do your, do your ideas make money or do they not? And I just always appreciated the, I didn't have to go try and play office politics. I just had to try and be thoughtful about investing ideas. And that just felt like a nice sort of straightforward landscape to come to work and try and succeed in. And the firm itself had the most tremendous platform of resources you could possibly imagine, like just a stunning amount of resources. Anything that you possibly want from an information perspective, you got it. You want to talk to any C-level executive of any publicly traded company on the planet, we can get that done, you know, within the next couple of days just anything like that. And so it was great and learned a ton, you know, Steve Cohen, the guy that runs it, you know, one of the most famous hedge fund investors of all time. It's not like he was sitting down once a week and giving seminars about how to invest, but you know, you spend enough time around the guy and you know, you can certainly pick up some, some great things. So,
0: so in the process of that, you had sort of kept an eye on cryptocurrency. You read about the, the collapse of the Silk Road, the the hack of Mount Gox, I think it was called. Yep. And in that process, you fell down the crypto rabbit hole. So so quoting yourself in Fortune magazine, tell me about magic internet money.
3: <laughs> yeah. So as we talked about so far, like I'm not I'm not a tech guy, not no. don't have a tech background, not a tech investor, not really a tech kind of guy mm-hmm. either. Don't own an Apple Watch. Alexa's big brother. Just always <laughs> felt like that. So it took me a while and I'm, a, I am also cautious. I'm a cautious investor and I'm like cautious as a person, like would never go skydiving. And I invest like I, I put like one little
0: foot out like this and kind of like test the waters like that. Which is interesting because hedge fund investing sort of has this rep as sort of a bunch of gunslingers. Yeah. Um. What do you think? So do you think that most iBankers, most hedge fund guys, like would most people be surprised at their sort of conservative personal risk profiles or are you an exception to that?
3: You'll see all different types. Uh-huh. You, you will definitely see all different types. I, I think I just, in the context of sort of the hedge fund investing spectrum, I think I just happen to be on the cautious side of things so it takes all different types and that the that the gunslinger look i think people that haven't worked at a hedge fund before haven't managed money before think that it's like an episode of billions No, oh, yeah or 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 they think it's like wolf of wall street yes. or they think it's like boiler room mm-hmm. and it's way less sexy than that what it's really about is you build investment framework and then you put a bunch of processes inside of that framework, mm-hmm. and then you build a bunch of tools that help you execute those processes. And in the same way that Henry Ford used to crank out Model Ts, you can crank out attractive risk-adjusted returns on a repeatable basis like that. And 0.72 is like kind of like the Navy SEALs of that type of investing strategy. and. It is entire, like, it's like the, the like Wall Street, I'm going to go party all night and then show up at the office and make a bunch of money and like something like that. It's, it is nothing like that. It is, it is way too cerebral of a job to, I mean, the guys walking around as a bunch of nerds, man. It's just a bunch of nerds looking at a bunch of computer screens all day. And it is I think it is a job. I tell people you know hedge fund investing in publicly traded instruments if you have a really analytical brain then it's it's like heaven for you right and i've been like that my entire life highly analytical my entire life so felt like i kind of had a brain that was built for it and so pulling that back to crypto i basically read a little bit about it in late 13 a little bit more about it in 14 early 14 stopped looking at it at all for 18 months popped back up on my radar in in late 2016, right around two years ago when BTC's price started going back up again. Mm-hmm. And I remember being amazed at the Mount Gox, Got hacked in early 2014. Seventy percent of Bitcoin volume traded on Mt. Gox. They stole a couple hundred thousand to, uh, BTC in total. Which is just like a like imagine you wake up tomorrow morning and somebody stole half the stocks off the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> and, oh oh, and you can't get them back. They're not no, nobody knows where they went. And you can't get them back. Hmm. And then imagine two years later, the New York Stock Exchange not only survived that, but was meaningfully stronger than before it happened less than two years after that. So that's what I saw in late 2016 when I, jumped, when I stepped back into the Bitcoin ecosystem. I saw an ecosystem that had taken this gargantuan left hook mm-hmm. in the form of Mt. Gox and had, was not only standing, but thriving. And that was super interesting to me. And then you rolled the early 17, Ethereum and all the ICOs started going crazy, started reading more about it. And then I basically came back from July 4th break last year and fell down the proverbial crypto rabbit hole and just started spending all my time reading about crypto.
0: So let's talk briefly about that. I think the reason that crypto did, as you said, not only survived an enormous setback like that, but is thriving and growing explosively, despite all of that, is because the idea of cryptocurrency, the concept of it is very... Philosophically attractive, Mm. and there are aspects of so. So, if you would for our audience, let's let's talk about it at the most basic levels. What is cryptocurrency, and why do people want it?
3: Yeah. So we use the term crypto asset instead of cryptocurrency, and instead of blockchain, we use distributed ledger technology (DLT) for short. Okay. Um, So when you hear me talk about this technology in this asset class you'll hear me talk about DLT and crypto assets okay distributed ledger technology is in a, blockchain is a type of distributed ledger technology there okay. are other types of distributed ledger technologies blockchain is far and away the most popular one it remains to be seen whether or not it will be the eventual winner which is why we use the the larger umbrella term DLT
0: does this tie in with the proof of work proof
3: of stake stuff it does okay it does So distributed ledger technology is an information protocol Okay, in the same way that HTTP is an information protocol, and SMTP is an information protocol. All right. You built the World Wide Web on top of HTTP. You built email on top of SMTP. Yes. The guy that invented HTTP isn't a billionaire. The guy that invented voice over IP is actually a friend of mine. He has a lot of money, but he didn't get it from creating voice over IP because... Value didn't accrue at the information protocol layer. It didn't accrue at HTTP. Instead, what it did was it, it was a platform, and you had companies that were built on top of, of HTTP, and they charged revenues for the products and services they provided on the platforms that were built on top of HTTP, and the equity of those companies accrued value, and that's the internet as we know it today. This is a FAT protocol thesis? Not quite. Okay. And so now, with the introduction of a crypto asset that Uh is associated with that specific DLT, it allows for value to accrue in that token rather than to leak on top to the application layer. And that's really, really revolutionary. And the the very simplistic example that I give to people is, imagine the guy that invented HTTP. Imagine... If the day he invented it, he created 100 million HTTP tokens. And each token was one one-thousandth of one cent. Okay. And if I wanted to log on to the World Wide Web, I had to pay one HTTP token. But there weren't going to be any more HTTP tokens ever made. And then uh, you built the entire Internet, and the Internet was today. Like, What do you think the value of an HTTP token would be? Yeah, Right. I, I don't know, but crazy. directionally, yeah. you you get my point, yes. right? So th- so that is what we see today with this technology and this asset. Mm-hmm. Crypto assets are a new asset class that
0: is built on top of a new type of technology, DLT. Okay, so then, so if those things, if you're translating that one to one, the idea is that the real value is in DLT. Is because or and tell me if I'm not understanding that correctly, because in HTTP, like the tokens are just a representation of what the utility that I can generate from this building block on which the Internet is constructed. So I and the only reason I'm saying this is because I want to correctly understand what it is that people find valuable at the most basic level about DLT or the units of currency in which DLT is represented. There are many use cases for distributed ledger technology. Mm-hmm.
3: Currency is one of them. Right. It is the one that is most easily understood relative to what else we see in this world currently. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin is vying to be digital gold. Uh, a a non sovereign store of value, mm. um, in the sense that there is no government that controls the supply and the demand of it. And if you ask a gold bug, is your dad a gold bug? Mm. No. If you ask a gold bug, a gold bug would tell you that these days gold doesn't really work at, like it should. Uh, because so much gold is held by central banks mm-hmm. that the price is is kind of manipulated relative to what's going on with sovereign issued currencies fiat currencies across the world and so what what you now have is the Bitcoin blockchain and the the value proposition, that BTC makes relative to its status quo, which is gold, the framework you put around that value proposition is um, like an Austrian economics type of framework. It's a hard money versus soft. It's a sound versus unsound money. Mm-hmm. The six characteristics of money. There's, I'm sure that gets taught here at Mays Business School. Yeah,
0: you're talking about things like fungibility, divisibility, yeah. transfer friction, limited those... supply. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. okay. And so, in in the
3: current market environment, when you put BTC next to gold yeah. in the context of that type of framework, it actually looks pretty good. Yes. And, and that has folks very interested, especially in the context of what we've seen from the global coordinated central bank monetary policies on the back of the global financial crisis. We, we are in the midst of the largest monetary experiment in human history. We've printed, I can't remember, it's like $17 trillion since the financial crisis across the five largest central banks. Mm -hmm. And it has distorted asset prices in some really tangible and concerning ways. I think there's something like $15 trillion of negative-yielding sovereign debt. So, So just fundamentally... How does something like that happen? Well, it happens when you you push so much liquidity into the world that it distorts the fundamental nature of asset prices. And money as a use case for distributed ledger technology is a way to opt out of that or take a very small percentage of your portfolio, 1% of your portfolio, 5% of your portfolio, and say, uh This is an uncorrelated asset. This thing operates in a totally different framework than any other asset class, real estate, private equity, currencies, fixed income, developed market equities, emerging equities. This is something very different. And the weighted average probability that this you know, something like BTC is successful relative to the returns that would be generated if it is just marginally successful, makes it something that you have to look at from an investment perspective.
0: That makes sense. So now we have a bunch of different crypto assets out there. You have BTC, you have Ethereum, and there's a bunch more that I don't even remember the names of. It seems like at least some of the differences that, between those crypto assets are in the way in which they handle either the blockchain or more generally the distributed ledger technology like are there any of those that are the same in every way except they have different names or are they all actually is the underlying structure of all of those crypto assets actually different in subtle or not so subtle ways it's a good question there are many use cases for DLT,
3: right? Currency or, or a store of value is, is one use case. Ethereum is uh, a completely different value proposition from BTC. Uh, Ethereum is, is simplistically trying to be decentralized computational processing power to run what are called smart contracts, okay. which is um, coded logic, computer program-coded logic to execute a series of commands. And ETH, the currency, is the, the utility token that, that powers this sort of decentralized computational processing ecosystem.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you can build prediction markets with distributed ledger technology. You can build decentralized storage you can do all kinds of things with supply chain logistics you can do things with record keeping you can do things with uh micropayments in in iot economy there's there's many many use cases all those ones that i that i named it's early for all of them mm-hmm. it is 1992 and we're just starting to put newspapers on the internet And people used to value the total addressable market of the internet as the aggregate value of all the newspapers in the world. (laughs) Right. And so it is a little difficult point we are right now. Take, take money or store value, put it off to the side because the, that value proposition is pretty clearly understood right now. Right. Um, or at least it's understood plenty well enough that you can speculate on the likelihood that it might happen. All those other ones, there's a lot more work to be done. Mm -hmm. However, the amount of human capital that is running to this asset class to go solve these problems is breathtaking. And, you know, I'd like to think that in my prior career path, I've worked with a bunch of really smart people and there are just as many, if not more smart people
0: that are working on solving all those new use cases for this technology. Well, and in your words, when the internet came along, we didn't have the internet to help us understand the internet. Yeah, And now we have the internet to help us understand DLT.
3: Yeah, so that speaks to the pace of evolution in this asset class, which which again is, is a completely unlike anything that I've ever seen before. The space evolves in a a darwinian manner and in a uh, cambrian explosion manner and that is and that's because the vast majority of this technology is open source and so every new project that comes along at least in theory has and in many cases in actuality has the knowledge of all the prior projects that came before it so the so the 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 saying standing on the shoulders of giants each new evolution of projects in this space gets to stand on all the shoulders of all the other projects and evolve it just a little bit forward so you you, you understand what i mean when you when like darwinian and cambrian explosion right Oh no, yeah. sure
0: yeah yes But talking about the open sourceness of all of this, so I've seen some of your stuff on Twitter, obviously I've listened to some of your previous interviews, you talk about the open sourceness of this, the idea of Wikipedia versus Britannica, disruption of the status quo, fake news and shilling. Um, So talk a little bit about the information markets around what i'll just call distributed ledger technology in general yep. like just broadening it out even beyond crypto assets so what is that world like what are the goods and bads it sounds like there are a lot of both
3: yeah so it's it, that's right it's like it's like the best and the worst like hmm. like like crypto twitter is its own little corner of twitter and it's like the best and the worst yeah. simultaneously so you have ridiculousness and Fraud and charlatans and liars and everything like that on crypto Twitter. And then you also have savant level intelligent people that are tweeting on a regular basis about what they're building, what they like, what they don't like, the manner in which they think this ecosystem needs to evolve. Mm-hmm. And they're giving that to the world and they're inviting feedback. Right. And they're going to conferences and giving presentations. And that and that presentation is on YouTube. And they're going on the, the crypto podcast like that. That's like a whole ecosystem as well, too. And the smartest guys in crypto are going on podcasts and going in depth about what it is that they um, are seeing in the space right now. Mm-hmm. And so and so that's what I mean by that, like Wikipedia approach versus the Britannica approach, because, you know, in my prior career path, my information sources were like sell side equity research. Right. So I'm at 0.72. 0.72 is a big client of Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Bank of America and, you know, uh, every other investment bank on the planet. And so these guys would provide us all of their research and they'd have the buy the buy reports and the sell reports and the, you know, the in-depth macro pieces and this, that and the other. And because we were a good client, then I got access to all that research. But like you couldn't get access access to that research right, right. like any regular like it, you know if you try to buy it i don't even know how much they'd charge you you know $200,000 a year for it or something is yeah is the short answer yeah of course and here the most in-depth pieces are being written on medium.com for free mm. available for free there's there is not e- there's barely a tangible paid research ecosystem in crypto because all the smart guys are talking out in the open. It's one of this ecosystem's
0: greatest strengths. Right. And then on the other side of it, also one of its greatest weaknesses, you. Maybe not weaknesses, but you just have to—you have to go in with, you know, with your shield in front of you. And you used a word several times that I'll paraphrase as tomfoolery. <laughs> <laughs> and you—you ac- you accused uh, some of the bigger names in the business. I won't name any names. I'll let you choose who and what you want to say. Yeah, but. What are the, if you can zoom this out to as non-technical a place as you can, what are the bad behaviors that we're seeing? I mean, shilling is an obvious obvious one, conflicts of interest, but what are the other bad behaviors that we're seeing in this space?
3: So the U.S. regulatory bodies, SEC, CFTC, FinCEN, Mm -hmm. are cleaning up the space in very real time. Uh, You've you've seen a number of enforcement actions this year. You're going to see a whole bunch more next year. The long arm of of U.S. regulators can stretch internationally in some cases. Mm -hmm. It remains to be seen because there are some major exchanges and crypto ecosystem participants that are based in places like Malta where you can kind of do whatever you want to. Mm -hmm. And that has led to some actions that are uh, not in the best interest of the long-term health of this ecosystem. Sure. And it's just, it's kind of like Lord of the Flies, to be honest with you. It's kind of like you're seeing, you see, you know what it actually it is? It's a lot of, it's a lot of uh, low time preference activities It's ecosystem participants that are willing to do something that is detrimental to the long-term health of the ecosystem. And the the analogy I use all the time is like those vines that wrap around the trees that are going to kill the tree if Mm -hmm. you don't cut the vine off. Mm -hmm. There's that type of activity that goes on right now. And people, you have ecosystem participants that are willing to go be that vine if they think they can make a couple million dollars or in some cases a whole bunch of million dollars in the near term and like... You know, it'll be somebody else's problem if, if it ends up being, you know, poisonous to the space. And in the absence of, and again, you know, I certainly, as you probably imagine, lean a little bit on the libertarian side of things, not... In the spectrum of crypto, I'm not even close to the most libertarian, uh, but I like have a tendency to, you know, smaller governments, probably a good thing. But in in cases like this, when you don't have any kind of regulatory body that was overseeing what was going on in this ecosystem in 2017, you just had things crop up that were just, I mean,
0: not what you want to see at all. Right. Well, even a small government types and I'm one also, but I mean, we need like we need we need roads. We need police and police, you know, law enforcement is something you don't want privatized. Right. And when you like it's very easy for us to look at, you know, the modern United States infrastructure outside of crypto, just look at the world and say, we need smaller government, but that takes some things for granted that you can take for granted in American politics, but you probably can't take for granted in a space like this. Yep. So then rolling off of that you have said that you think the things keeping really big institutional investors out of the crypto market so far are fourfold regulatory which is what we're which is what we're talking about here custody prime services and valuation can you talk a little bit more about those concepts at a basic level yep
3: yeah. so custody uh, for crypto assets i think people are probably familiar with this if you have your bitcoin sitting on an exchange that exchange can get hacked. And it's like the world's biggest bug bounty for hackers. Because if you steal cryptocurrency from a exchange, your ability to go and monetize that and not get caught, it's a lot higher than going and stealing like $5 million out of a bank and then like figuring out what to do with that. Yeah. And so if you have your crypto sitting on an exchange, it is susceptible to being hacked. Although, don't get me wrong, places like Coinbase have... I'm intimately familiar with their custody solutions and and they are astonishingly strong. Uh, so I will say that. And so then if you don't want to keep it on exchange, then you keep it in a cold wallet, which is basically like a flash drive and the flash drive has a password on it. And so you, you enter the password and it basically unlocks this thing and you can take crypto off of it and do whatever you want to with it. If you lose your password to that flash drive, then you can't get your crypto back. If you lose the flash drive itself, then when the flat when you first get the flash drive, the flash drive spits spits out at you 24 random words. And you write down those 24 random words. And if you lose the flash drive, then you can buy a new flash drive and you can enter those 24 new words and it'll bring that one back up. But if you lose your flash drive and you lose your 24 words, then your crypto is gone forever. And it doesn't matter if it was $10 worth of BTC or $10 billion worth of BTC, you ain't getting it back. That's terrifying, right? So, like, you want institutional investors to come into the space, but like, oh, you want, like, whatever, like, you know, Fidelity or like BlackRock's going to come buy a bunch of crypto. Like, what are they going to do? They buy a hundred billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and put it on a flash drive and keep it in a filing cabinet? Like, how are they going to do it? So, that, so so custody is an issue. Regulatory uncertainty is undoubtedly an issue. That's getting cleaned up in real time. What are the biggest
0: steps that they're taking to clean it up? Like, you know, what are the what are the three most important yeah. things that they've done? So,
3: so, so the number, I'll boil it down to one. It's called the Howie test. Okay. Um... Do you guys talk about the Howey test at Hay- May's Business yeah. School? So, so this is um, determining whether or not a financial instrument is a security. You define the Howey test is an investment of money into a common enterprise with the expectations of returns on the sole efforts of others. So those are the four prongs. And uh, it's based on a piece of judicial legal precedent from 1949 about orange grove trees in Florida. Hmm. So we are using a law about orange grove trees in Florida to govern magic internet money. That's a little unfortunate. But that's the world we're living in.
0: Sure. So well, it seemed just just from hearing you describe the test, it seems like a pretty robust way of thinking. It's about okay. It. It's
3: okay. And so right now, basically, what they're looking at is all these ICOs. Many, many, many of these ICOs that were issued in in late 16, 17, early 18 passed the Howey test and were indeed securities and uh, essentially none of them registered as as securities. So that was the sale of unregistered securities to investors, which is, uh, that would be a no-no. Yeah. So all that's getting backed out right now. There's other things, you know, trying to decide whether or not some of this stuff is Bitcoin has been deemed a commodity. Ethereum has been deemed a commodity. The SEC and CFTC are working together to figure out they've actually introduced, uh, the concept of, uh, a crypto assets that could start out as a security and then morph into a commodity. Hmm. So now you start, you know, okay, that's definitely a new asset class, right? Um, they, they've introduced this concept of, uh, sufficient decentralization because it's on the, it's on the sole efforts, the sole, managerial efforts of others. And the view is, is that like, if if this thing is, if, if a network is a thing because 10,000 people are using it, then it's not a security. It's like this collective community and it's the size, it's the decentral, the 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 magnitude of decentralization that makes this thing valuable. And so maybe it's not a security. So they're working through some of these concepts right now. The, the, the U.S. regulatory body has actually been, less heavy handed than fear they've been they've been pretty good and so i think they want to see this thing flourish they you know want to make sure that there's not a bunch of shady stuff going on and uh and so those lines number of those lines have been drawn in the sand year to date and they'll continue to get drawn in the sand over the course of of 2019 as well too
0: okay and then briefly on prime services and
3: valuation yeah Prime services is just like a, a prime broker. If you're a hedge fund, then like you know whatever. Goldman's our prime broker. Morgan Stanley's our prime broker, and that that is just basically providing collateralized lines of credit so that uh, you facilitate the buying and selling of stocks, as opposed to having to sort of fully collateralize every every buy or sell, and then uh, stock lending and margin trading. They're kind of the the, the big buckets. Uh, it looks a little bit different in crypto, but but essentially this is like. The liquidity, you know, to sum it up in a sentence, this is, this is infrastructure that facilitates liquidity for institutional investors to invest into the asset class. And that it's a backbone. And this is a backbone that, you know, I think Main Street doesn't even really realize exists in traditional Wall Street investing, but it's like, you know, a multi trillion dollar business. And then valuation. So the way I tell people is, uh, so in my old line of work, if I'm going to buy a share of Exxon Mobil today,
2: mm-hmm.
3: am I paying a lot or little for a share of Exxon Mobil? Well, the, the price of, of Exxon Mobile share doesn't tell me whether or not I'm paying a lot or little. It just tells you the price you're paying. Right. So if I'm going to try and figure out whether or not I'm going to pay a lot or a little for a share of ExxonMobil today, I got about 30 different tools in the tool shed. A lot of those I learned for the first time at May's business school. A lot of them are relative valuation metrics, right? You've got a relative valuation metrics based on revenues and assets and earnings and cash flows. I've got, you know, I can take my oil price assumption, plug it into my ExxonMobil model. It'll spit out an EPS. I can slap a PE ratio on that EPS. That'll give me a stock price. I can think of what a share of ExxonMobil represents in the context of like the global macro framework. Are we risk on? or we risk off? I can take a view on what OPEC's gonna do. I can invest in in and look at ExxonMobil in the context of that. I can look at something like a multi-factor model, a bar beta multi-factor model and looking at it through that lens. So essentially all that goes out the window when you step into crypto. So folks are, cause this is not equity. This is not a legal claim on revenues, assets, earnings, or cash flows. Mm-hmm what it may be what we think it is is an intrinsic claim on network effect and you have the value that's created by the technology and you have the value that's accrued by the token and the bridge between those two things is token structure token economics maybe you've heard that word before that term before token yes. token economics is simplistically the manner in which the supply and demand of a token intersects with the use case of the technology of the underlying DLT.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. And so this is a real new area of valuation. It's fascinating. I can tell you right now, if you're like a valuation guy, it is so fascinating. And if, and I've said this now for uh, close to a year, if they gave Black Scholes a Nobel Prize for figuring out how to price options, whoever figures out how to price crypto assets in the same type of way, there's totally a Nobel prize waiting for that. And so uh,
0: it's fascinating to be on the, on the bleeding edge of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, Gene, you know, Jean Fama won a Nobel prize, you know, I mean, 25 years later, but you know, and Schiller and those, those guys, I mean, like just uh, like I'm more of a cap M Fama and French. Like that's, that's kind of where I'm, that's where I feel safest in terms of valuation. But this is, this, this just opens up like a whole, it's it's it makes the whole thing multidimensional yeah like it's you have to be able to visual you like in a way visualizing it is a tricky beast because you can only think about certain pieces of it at a time yep so rolling out of that you have founded and serve as chief investment officer for a company called ike guy asset management that's a favorite word of a previous guest of ours dr janet marcantonio oh nice so tell us what you guys do
3: Yep. So Ikigai Asset Management is a crypto asset hedge fund. Uh, we seek to generate superior risk-adjusted returns on a repeatable basis. We do that through investing in venture stage crypto asset projects, mm-hmm. both newly issued tokens and the equity of the entities that are issuing the new tokens, mm-hmm. and both long and short liquid crypto assets. Very simplistically, the way to summarize it is in the same way, ways that traditional hedge funds have been deploying strategies into traditional asset classes for decades, Mm. you can kind of take those types of strategies, rejigger them a little bit and deploy them into this new asset class. And so that's, that's a lot of
0: what we've done. What do you bring to the table that no one else does? (laughs) How are you differentiating yourselves? Yeah,
3: Yeah. So I've got top couple percentile Institutional investing experience relative to anybody else that's trying to do this in the crypto asset space. Mm-hmm. There's not another portfolio manager from Point72 that's running a crypto fund. There's a term called quantum mental that yeah. got thrown around a lot at Point72.
0: Yeah, I've heard you use um, that one on your other shows.
3: Yeah, the intersection of fundamental and quantitative investing, or mm-hmm. said differently, harnessing the power of big data to help humans make investment decisions. Right. So quantum mental investing is is at the, uh, the core of how we deploy capital into liquid crypto assets for our liquid crypto asset strategy. And so simplistically, the way that looks is I've got analysts on my team doing deep, fundamental, qualitative research around what is going to make these instruments accrue value and, and how that's going to look mm-hmm. and uh, attractive pockets of investment and unattractive pockets of investment. And then I've got quantitative analysts that are doing what is called alpha signal research. And these are guys that came from uh, traditional quant- quantitative hedge fund backgrounds, and that's about doing all kinds of things with all kinds of different types of data to try and draw investable conclusions from that data. And so, what we do at Ikiga is you create a, you create a two way street. You have fundamental people that are establishing qualitatively based theses, and then you use quantitative data to track and analyze and assess the validity of those qualitative theses. So that's the road going one way. At the same time, you've got quantitative guys that are looking at all sorts of different data and doing all kinds of different things with it, and they are finding interesting things that happen in the data and then presenting that to the qualitative side and seeing if you can wrap a qualitative story around what's showing up in the quantitative data. So that's kind of what quantum mental looks like. And we have discretionary strategies where I make investment decisions and we have quantitative strategies where an algorithm makes investment decisions. And so we we do both of those things simultaneously and deploy capital in a dynamic way across a number of different strategies.
0: That's it, It's really fascinating to me the way that the the weave of. Data and narrative mm-hmm. have sort of like they're kind of spiraling together mm-hmm. at this point. And the idea that you can, the idea that we're almost to the point where we can start quantifying story. We're not there yet. And, yeah. and I think to a degree, you don't want to stifle creativity. But the idea of there is now an algorithm Spotify, Pandora, like there is an algorithm that can tell you what kind of music you're going to like, and it gets more specific every single day. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I find that stuff pretty fascinating. I play in a very narrow investment space. And so for us, like the fundamentals are the data like we're, we're working with. We're, we're, we take a pretty quantitative approach, but that's neither here nor there. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel like your maze education prepared you for working in this strange and wonderful corner of the professional world? What were the best things that you got here?
3: Um, uh, Maze was a great foundation. You know, accounting is the language of business. I wasn't planning on being an accountant when I when I grew when, you know when I got out of college, but I tell people it was like learning Spanish to run a Mexican food restaurant, mm. and uh, it's been the language that I've used for financial analysis throughout my entire career. I was presented with just enough we, in grad school. We covered just enough about behavioral economics that it got me really, really interested, and I actually did. In aggregate, I'd say a couple hundred hours of self-study while I was in grad school, but specifically on behavioral economics, Hmm. because it struck me as um, the most accurate way to describe the way that it's behavioral economics is the study of uh, human decision making in the context of, uh, of investment decisions. Uh, or, or, or economic decisions. You're talking and, about
0: things like prospect theory and...
3: Yeah, yeah, all kinds of different things like that. And game theory, mechanism design, you know, more broadly. Rationality
0: traps. Um,
3: there you go. And... I think efficient market hypothesis assumes that market participants are rational actors. Humans in, faced with economic decisions are, are not rational actors. Uh, fear and greed makes people do things that are irrational all the time in the context mm-hmm. of of economic decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, behavioral economics is a study of that. I found it really fascinating. We touched on it a decent amount here, and you know just just exposure to a bunch of world class you know, alumni and inspirational uh, folks that came and talked to us over the years. And it was a great experience. I look back on it with really, really fond memories.
0: That's awesome, man. Let's move to some rapid fire questions. So as quickly as possible, what do you consider your most valuable failure?
3: Mm. There was a job that I really wanted at a hedge fund in San Francisco. I I was at Simmons and Company. I was interviewing for hedge fund jobs. I got the opportunity to get a really good one. I got Six rounds through the interview, it got down to um, me and one other guy. The other guy, out of the hundreds of people that they were interviewing, the other guy was literally my cube mate at Simmons, (laughs) Um, and he got the job offer. And I was devastated because I didn't think that I didn't think there would be any way that I was going to get a job opportunity that was going to look as good as that one. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I don't know, two weeks later, a headhunter called with the Magnetar opportunity. And it turned out to be such a better experience than what I would have had if I had gotten that job. And with just a little bit of hindsight, not even a lot of hindsight, like a year later, it was like, oh, man, this is a way better gig in that gig, yeah, and from that time on, it fundamentally changed how I viewed not getting something that I, at the time I really wanted. You try your best. If you if you want something, you better go for it, and you better give it a hundred percent. And that way, if you don't get it, you don't have any regrets. But I think even more importantly, it taught me that like the way the world works out is like, sometimes the things that you really want that bad, that ain't for you.
0: And I I truly believe that. And so, yeah. Sure. And it's your, your intrinsic value as a business person in that moment is the same, whether you got the yes or got the no. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, agree with what I with one of the underlying precepts of what you're saying there which is all you can do is make yourself the best person you can be is make yourself the best business person you can be the best like member of your community et cetera, and then the it's it can be a little disconcerting because the signaling that you're getting is not always the signaling that you want but otherwise anyway Hmm. so what do you think is people's biggest misconception of you
3: hmm Wow. You just completely stumped me. Let's see here. Misconception of me. I'm not sure how much I concern myself with what people think about me. Well, that's So bad. I think I'm having a hard time. I, I'm not sure what I'm not, sh- I'm not entirely sure what people's perception of me is. So I'm not sure I, I, I know exactly what a, a, a misperception might be. I mean, I, I, I do have a public persona, if there was a misconception, I guess it would be my public persona is entirely professional, like it's entirely talking about crypto and and being a crypto investor and one with a lot of institutional investment experience. Mm-hmm. So I guess if I was gonna say a, a misconception, it would be like that. There's nothing else to me other than that. Mm. Um, you were
0: you were really into music for a while. Yeah, super a of other super things. into music.
3: Yeah, been into music my whole life. Super active, and you know I think there's there's it would probably be that. There's more to me than just you know just magic internet money. <laughs> <laughs>
0: If you could choose anyone, living or dead, who would you choose as a mentor? And the only the only rule is you may choose a religious figure, but if you yourself are religious, it may not be a figure from your own religion.
3: Mm-hmm. I'll take
0: Thomas Jefferson. Interesting. Why? Why him? I know it's rapid fire, but uh, I want to hear this.
3: Uh, I don't know the way that that guy talked about Liberty is just like some of the most inspirational stuff I've ever seen. I, uh, I was going to say George Washington, but I always feel like Jefferson was a little bit more cerebral. Maybe. I don't know if that's true, mm-hmm. but like, he was a little bit more of the like putting together the ideas and George Washington was like the guy who's going to rally the troops up sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was the first thing that came to mind.
0: He uh, he definitely dropped some uh, truth bombs on Alexander Hamilton, <laughs> at least in the uh, in the stage, <laughs> in the stage version. Thomas Jefferson was definitely my favorite character in Hamilton. So, what is your what is your fondest memory of TAMU? Great question
3: too. My knee jerk reaction was football games. Although, another thing that just immediately popped into my head was getting the phone call i was standing like 50 yards away from this room when i got the phone call that i got the job offer from simmons and company Mm -hmm. which was you know i felt like a culmination of a bunch of hard work here sure um those are the first two things that popped in my head so
0: i like those answers and almost everyone we have in says two answers to that. One of them is usually like a like a professional answer or an academic answer and then the other one is something sports related. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important for the administrators of you know top level universities to understand how important that is for our memories of a place. Yep. So we close each session with some good bull. This is an opportunity to recognize someone else for something good or great they have done. Do you have anyone you would like to send some good bull?
3: Uh, definitely my team at Guy back in Los Angeles. Those guys have been, and girls have been tremendous and uh, have helped us build this platform very quickly. I'm deeply appreciative of, of all those guys. I'll just say, does Miss Guyton still work here? Yeah. She does. I'll just say shout outs, Ms. Guyton for uh, my finance 341 intro class that started me down the very broad rabbit hole that, you know, has now been, you know, 10, 10 plus years of a career in, in, in finance, at more or less the highest level. So mm-hmm.
0: appreciate that. Where can our listeners find you?
3: Yeah. Twitter's good. Travis underscore Kling, K-L-I-N-G. I'm active there. If you want to learn more about my investment management firm, ikigai.fund, I-K-I-G-A-I dot fund, would love to have more conversations about this. So if you're listening to this and you're like a big crypto guy, please reach out. Love to have back and forth with different guys. And this is all I do all day, every day. So enjoy having those types of conversations.
0: I so appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to come on the show. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Cheers. Thanks, Ben.
1: That episode. It was a lot of information about a really new, kind of wild west, as Ben said, new investing front. So excited to hear from Travis and learn a lot in that episode. Hope that you, as a listener, learned a lot too. I know Kyle mentioned it in the intro, but Kyle learned a lot too about what he needs to get out of immediately. So, yes. Kyle, you want to talk a little bit about your investment history with? Cryptocurrency and how you lucked into that. We'd love to hear that story.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I started a little bit before summer. It was pretty much right before school started. I had some money, and I figured, you know what? Why not? I keep on hearing about this thing. I kind of just left it alone, and uh, I started hearing about it in the news, and it eventually became like kind of this household name of like, oh, Bitcoin, this and that. It's making moves, and then I looked on the app, which I he mentions it uh, in the episode as a Coinbase which is the same application that I used. And during that time, I was like, wow, uh, that's a lot of money. (laughs) And I kind of just left it there. And from what I understand, it was getting ready to turn into a bubble. So I got out at a pretty good price and I made a good little sum of cash. As a 20-year-old student, you know, I was like, now I can pay for school, essentially.
1: There was so much from the episode. I mean, just Sally Guyton was hugely transformational for me. So hearing him talk about that, there was so much from the episode. I feel like we could talk about that. I really want to talk about, and maybe we'll do a separate episode to just talk about some of the things that I love what all of our guests said. Um, But Ben, anything that really stood out from you that you wanted to talk about?
0: So this is of some professional interest for me. You know, I I work at a small equity fund as well.
1: Like a really traditional. I, I mean, you you talked about that in the episode even a little bit. Y'all mm-hmm. are pharma and French cap M. Y'all are yep. Which again, Google have fun. Right. Um, but the, you are a really traditional. Yes. I, well, I don't want I don't want to put you in a pigeonhole. No, but no, you, but, not, a, not at all. But relative on the spectrum of Travis and Ben's experiences. You're in a much more traditional space. we're
0: in a much more traditional space, a much more conservative space, like if we were trying to do something or become someone, it's Berkshire Hathaway, which you know everybody knows who Warren Buffett is. But the idea of buying what well, all we're trying to do is buy a wonderful company at a fair price, and so something like this is really fascinating to me because it's not, it would probably be years or decades before a fund like ours would look at something like this, but I still understand it's going to change the world. And, you know, to be talking about things like regulatory, you know, like what he said about the Howey test, I thought it's real time application of figuring out like there, you can't decide how to deal with something like this because it's the way you've always done it, because there is no way you've always done it.
1: I remember when I first came out of school, and it it was a little bit before that that it started, but oil and gas companies, so I I was auditing, auditing oil and gas companies, and they were using derivatives, which if you know calculus, there are derivatives in calculus. This is the derivative that's the financial instrument. At the time, the regulation had just come out or fairly recently had just come out. And like the Howey test, people were trying to figure out if a derivative, this financial instrument, was a security or not. Mm -hmm. And that was part of that test. And now it's so obvious and we know so much more about derivatives than we did even in the early 2000s. And it's so interesting to hear what a black box this is. But we've seen that before with other things right we've we have other models to say nobody understood derivatives they didn't know what they were what they did they didn't know how to account for them that was where Enron got into a lot of trouble in that area and then now it's just part of business and it's well regulated and it is the, the practice is reasonable and people take advantage of it and all those things but now we're we're seeing that with just a new Thing that may or may not be a security. And we have to start there with that test of is this even a security?
0: And in some cases, it is.
1: Yeah. So interesting. I think one of the things that stood out to me from Travis's episode is he talked about how he didn't think he was good at math or quantitative skills until he took that Finance 341 course with Sally Guyton. And I I felt that same experience at the time that I went through that course. I assumed I was the dumbest person at A and M, based on some evidence, which was my SAT score, and um, just I really thought I I have a lot of making up to do when I got here. And I took that 341 course. It was the first time I really felt smart, and it was a lovely experience. But But because I found not not because I was any smarter in that moment than I was before, but because I found the space that was comfortable and a good fit for me. And I think there's sort of this expectation that at 18 years old, you need to know what you're going to do. And there's some stigma to changing your major or changing a career, maybe or whatever it is. But I certainly and unlike Travis, I didn't have exposure to all of these amazing lawyers or M&A law, or I I didn't know what any of that stuff was when I came into school, but I thought I was gonna be a marketing major. And then I took my first accounting class. I was like, this is kind of cool. And then I took that first finance class. I'm like, this is amazing. I remember I was, I think I missed maybe two questions the whole semester on, on an exam. But I would go to all the study sessions because I was just like, oh, I just want to do more of this. I just want to be around this stuff more. And I don't know, it, it was it was so interesting. So what I would say to 18-year-olds who are trying to make choices about their life is, make a choice and then when you find something not always the next shiny object but when you find something that really feels like that true fit be comfortable pivoting be comfortable making that change and I think if Travis had always just assumed I'm not good at quantitative things he certainly would be in another place now had he not paid attention to what was happening there
0: I'm astonished that you did not murder the SAT that seems like it would have been
1: so high school Shannon was a different person than, than the one you know now. I um I actually fell asleep during the SAT because I had might have been out a little too late the night before. And luckily my best friend, so we, we took it like, I don't know, 20 miles from our house, but we happened to be taking it on the same day in the same place in the same room sitting next to each other. And so I fall asleep taking this stupid test and she like nudges me. I mean, which we weren't cheating, but it could have been perceived. Right. So she, you know, she nudges me awake. And I'm like, I guess I should wake up and take this test. And then I did pretty poorly. And, um, my mom was like, okay, well, you have to retake it. And I, I said, absolutely not. I will get into the school that I get into and I would not have gotten into AM now. I actually had an econ teacher my senior year in high school who was asking everybody where they were going to go to school. And I was like, I don't know where I'm going to go to school. And, he said, well, where have you, where have you applied? Where have you gotten into? And so I said, oh, I got into Baylor and Abilene Christian university and A&M and it was Texas state at the time. No, Southwest Texas Southwest Texas at the time. And it's Texas state now, but I, you know, so I listed all the schools I got into and he goes, you got into A&M like you. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah. He goes, go there. <laughs> okay. Well, there well, look at you now. I know. Look, look at, at you now. He was like, "Go to the best school you can get into." Well, it's funny because I didn't get admitted into the, the business school. Mm-hmm. When I applied for AM. I mean, my SAT wasn't good. I wasn't I wasn't top 10. I think I was top 25%, maybe um but like right on the bubble of top 25% and and with a pretty poor SAT. And so, I actually, did I tell you this the other day? I told someone an undergrad my s a t score, and they go, "Oh, jeez, And I was like, like, like come on.
2: Was you wasn't yeah. that bad. <laughs> um,
1: but but I mean, that's, you know, ballpark how bad it is. It was a ten forty, by the way. I don't know if I should say that on the air right. I don't yeah. even know what that really means anymore. And it was before there's some writing portion, but it wasn't great. No offense to anyone who has lower than a ten forty. But I didn't get into the business school and I told someone that the other day and and I got in pretty quickly because I worked my tail off my freshman year to get a high enough GPA to be admitted. Mm-hmm. But I didn't get in and somebody said, aren't you kind of like running the business school now? <laughs> I was like, well, not quite, but I see your point. Like <laughs> it's it's all worked out. And, you know, I think we've talked about this on the show before and Travis talked about it a little bit. You know, sometimes there's a very clear A to B point and and football was that for him he saw how to get from a to b and it was a lot of hard work and then there's sometimes where that hard work isn't worth it to you or where your ability or for him he got injured right there where getting from a to b is not possible and or getting to a to b is not possible at that point point. and so for me getting into the business school as a freshman was not an option i wasn't getting in but i found another way to get from a to b work really hard and get in there. And I think and we've talked before about how like with consulting, sometimes you decide you want to go into consulting and sometimes consulting decides they don't want you. And that's hard for a lot of students to take. But, you know, Travis talked about that job he didn't get that he really wanted and how it was such a blessing. And I think being comfortable with recognizing I want to go from A to B and that may not be an option right now, and so I might have to go over here first, and then come back and go to B, or B is never an option, and that's not the path that I'm supposed to be on.
0: Well, even beyond that, so I have a, you know a small business in the esports field, and it started out as a consulting firm. The idea was for it to be uh, an esports consulting firm, and it became obvious that esports consulting that consulting in the esports space is going to be pretty limited until the industry starts to mature a little bit more and there are a number of reasons for that which we can get into another time so my choices at that point were quit say okay i'm going to wash my hands of this and walk away or say we have this infrastructure we have this i have this discord community i have a website like we've got all of this stuff is there something we can pivot to? Like, is there like, just look at the landscape and say, all right, so this front door is not big enough to walk through yet. So is there a side door or a window we can climb through? Like what else can we do with all of this valuable stuff that we've assembled mm-hmm. and the ability to say, okay, that's not working. What else could work is really important in business and in life.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Good stuff. Good stuff. Anything else, Ben?
0: No, we'd like to thank the listeners for tuning in. If you have time to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, we are always happy to have your feedback. Five-star reviews are appreciated, but you, if you have any constructive criticism as well, we're happy to hear that. And thank you for your eardrums. Without you, we don't have a show. So thanks and giggle. Thank you to our production team, producer Kyle Ackerman, executive producer Shannon Deer, and the host of the Mindless Millennials podcast and pre-launch executive producer Bailey Mullins. Give the Mindless Millennials podcast a listen. You'll find the Mindless Millennials show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, mindlessmillennials.com, or wherever you find your podcast content.